Good morning. My name is Connor. I have two sons. You saw one of them up there, Lucas, running around with that kickball. And I love little Lucas. He's two years old, and so he's at this, uh, what some might call the terrible two stage, but um, really it's just because he has emotions now, and he's connecting those to his wants and his needs and his fears, and, and, and he's just he's becoming a human being and a, per, and a person and a personality. And so sometimes he gets overwhelmed. Sometimes he gets worked up. There's lots of, like last night for two hours he cried to get, for his shoes to be put back on while we were in the car. You know, he took them off, and then we were driving down I-25, asking for his shoes back on. So, you know, that's the sort of thing a two-year-old does. So when he gets all worked up, he says sometimes he gets to the point where he doesn't even know why he's worked up anymore. And I'm his father, so what I do, I've been working on this with him. I grab him, and I say, son. I grab his face, and I say, breathe. And he's going, <laughs> and he goes, breathe. He goes, <laughs> I say, Lucas, one more time. And he goes, <gasps> and it doesn't always work perfectly that way. <laughs> but sometimes it does, and it's, it's kind of surprising when it does. But um, So we've been working on that. So everybody in here, just take a big old deep breath with me. Just fill your lungs. Just and <sighs> Okay, perfect. Other thing I love about my son is he's... Uh, very, uh, he sees everything that's happening right now. Monkey see, monkey do. So I have to watch out for how I behave. Um, I woke up in the, this morning, I had a song in my head was my four-year-old said a four-letter word, you know, started with S and I was concerned. And I was thinking about that this morning. I was talking about my son and how he, uh, uh, he imitates us and he, and he does what we do. And uh, so he likes to pray because he sees us pray at dinner. And when it's time for us to have dinner, I would say, Lucas, do you want to pray? And he says, yes. And I try to hold hands with him. He says, no, myself. It was holding hands, he says, no, myself, myself. So he goes, okay. So I go, okay, Lucas, go ahead and pray. He says, okay, myself. And he goes, Jesus, amen. Okay, so, and so that's how he, uh, that's what we do. So, um, all right. Let's, that's, that's my son, and I love him. I love him so dearly. We're talking about Joshua today. Another side note, my other son's name is Joseph. If you hear me say the name Joseph, I mean Joshua. I'm not talking about Joseph at all today, but it might slip in there like a hundred times. I don't know how many times I did it last time or not, but Joseph means Joshua. We're talking about Joshua today. All right, Joshua, son of Nun. Um, he was born a slave in Egypt. You might not know this, but so he was born a slave into a place in a time where he would have most likely been someone who saw the miracles and the plagues and the things that, um, that didn't soften Pharaoh's heart but broke his heart to the point where he let those people go. And so he saw those things and he left with Moses, headed out. Um, and it, the scriptures say that he was Moses' aide. We don't know if he was his aide in Egypt or after, or you know, we don't know what point in his life that started, um, but we do know that he was his aide and he was his right-hand man right there. And, uh, and you know, you had uh, Aaron and these priests who were kind of Moses's like spiritual backing, and then you had Joshua who was like his like get it done man, his guy who was his who he went to when he needed stuff to happen. Um, and so he saw things from a perspective throughout his life that would have been different than your everyday. Um, Israelite, because he got to walk right alongside Moses. 
Um, Greg mentioned this last week a little bit, but in the first time Joshua is mentioned is in Exodus 17:9, and it says after they'd left Egypt that Moses said, Joshua, go get some men to fight. They had to go fight the Amalekites. So he went out and he chose some men to fight, and he went down into the valley and started fighting them. And Moses, when his hands were raised, they were winning, and when they were, Moses' hands were down, they were losing. And so Moses had this whole thing up on the mountain for a long time with his friends helping him hold his hands up. But meanwhile, that that whole scene's going on, uh, Joshua's down there um, in, the, uh, in the blood and the guts and the things that are um, hand-to-hand combat in ancient times. So he's in there um, doing what he has to do down in the valley. And um, Moses is given a word from the Lord, and he says, tell Joshua about this. And what he tells Joshua is essentially an account of what happened up on the mountain. And that is to teach Joshua about it wasn't Moses' power. It wasn't Joshua's power. It was their faithfulness in the Lord that won that battle for them. And he was going to have to hold on to that for the rest of his life um, because he had a lot of more fighting ahead of him, uh, physical and spiritual. All right, Charlton Heston. Who knows him? Who's seen it? Who's seen this? I need to know. All right, there's more. In the first service, there was like two people with gray hair seeing it. That's okay. It's old. It's from the Ten Commandments. It's uh, worth your time, maybe. It's very lengthy. But um, um, so we've got this is Moses getting the Ten Commandments. Right there in the background, we've got Joshua hanging out with Moses. So pretty cool um, that we know Moses went up on the mountain, and he received the Ten Commandments from the Lord. But what we might not know is that Joshua went up there with him. And he didn't get to go all the way up to where it happened, but he went up the mountain with Moses, and he was with him along the way. And during this time, um, Israel is starting, they've, they've got a, the golden calf, they're, they're, and they're, they're uh, worshiping an, an idol while Moses is gone. And a constant theme throughout Israelites' history, is, especially during this time, is they keep going, we should just go back to Egypt. It's better back there. They want to return to the old way and to their old self. And while I regularly um, think that they're such fools for that, I am a fool as well who returns to the old man um, all the time. Um, And I forget about the new man. But they come down off the mountain and and they see this thing going on. And there's there's a whole story around that. But what's interesting about Joshua in this instance is he was chosen, and he wasn't just chosen by Moses. He was chosen by God, and he's in, he, we're going to see him beside Moses like this throughout his life, throughout his young life before it's time for him to take the mantle, and God positions him to prepare him throughout his life, um, and I think that's special. So when they're out in the wilderness, this is a picture of basically a tabernacle and Ark of the Covenant and the encampment the Israelites would have had. Really, it would have looked a lot different than this, but it helps you see kind of how they're doing. They, they, would, they would put the tabernacle in the middle of the camp. They would camp around it. And so Moses would commune with God in a tent of meeting. He'd go off and he would um, hear from the Lord and get instruction on how to move the people forward. And... Um, when Moses would um, be in there, he would, he would get up and he would leave. And Joshua would stay in there. And he'd stay in the tent 
with the Lord. And, and, and the way the Bible puts it, it seems like this wasn't a one-off. It seems like this was something that would, this is how the rhythm was of his life. Moses would go in, he'd go in with him, they'd receive a word from the Lord. Moses would go talk to the people and he'd remain in there. And this preparation um, for his life and the spending time at the feet of the Father. And a beautiful thing about his time with Moses, I think, is he got to see Moses as a man, not just as an exalted leader. He would have seen Moses in his lows and in his highs, and he would have seen him as a human. And when we see people that way, we revere them even more sometimes, don't we? You know, sometimes you meet your, um, they say, you know, you meet your, your celebrity or whoever you're a big fan of, and they really let you down. But also sometimes, you know, the, the measure of a man is, you know, seen and is exemplified through how they react to hardship, how they react to struggle, and how they move forward in their life. So Joshua has this example set for him through Moses, and he has a, another example set for him by his intimacy with the Father, going back to that time in the tent of meeting and being in there and dwelling at the foot of the mercy seat. This isn't grandma's furniture that they're worshiping. It's the Ark of the Covenant. And it, if you've seen Indiana Jones, it will melt your face. So <laughs> they, um, this is what they're doing in there. So uh, Israel is out in the wilderness. They've been promised this promised land. And they say, okay, it's time to go into the promised land. Moses picks 12 spies, one from each tribe of Israel. And of those, two of them are Joshua and his friend Caleb. I wish I could do a whole sermon on Caleb. He's super awesome. I love him. I love his story. I love the man he is. But this is the only time we're going to hear about him for a little bit. But Joshua and Caleb and these 10 spies, they go out to seek the land and go, you know, tactically, strategically, what you, this is how you do it. You go find what it is you're taking over. You go find how you're going to do it. And you get some intel on, you know, the people there and, and how you can take them out. And so this is what they're doing. That's their job. And they go out and... They find grapes, so they find a big old bushel of grapes, so stinking huge, they had to put it on a stick and carry it. And I like to think of these, these ex-slaves who are hanging out in the wilderness in the desert, finding some grapes the size of a man. You know, you'd just be like, yes! <laughs> this is where we're supposed to be. This is the promised land. I found it. These grapes are huge, right? So they stuck him on a stick and they're walking him around. And I like to think of Joshua and Caleb kind of being bros. And I think they were kindred uh, with, and it just, you know, yeah, man, just eat these grapes, bro. And they're just walking with the pole, just, just eating it up and they're loving it and they're having a good time. And Joshua and Caleb, like, this is where we're supposed to be. This is where we need to go. And so while they're spying out the land, it's not all grapes and milk and honey. There's other people who want that milk and honey too, and they've already been there for a heck of a long time. And they're huge. They're giants in their eyes, and they see these, these big people, um, they, and they return back to Moses and give report. Joshua and Caleb say, let's do this. We can do this. The Lord is with us. The Lord didn't take us out of Egypt just to leave us here to die. He had this plan for us in mind. He had this place for us. He's been preparing it for us. But the other 10 uh, from the other 10 tribes, they started to spread some you know, dissent and, 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 and disunity. And it got to the point where Moses couldn't take them in there because all of Israel, they were too afraid they were going to die. They said, we look like grasshoppers compared to these giants. But just remember that even if you are a grasshopper, the Lord is not a grasshopper. And so there's a huge consequence for this. 
The Lord says, you will now wander for 40 years in the wilderness. And not only that, but all of you who left Egypt, you're all going to die out here in the wilderness. Um, except for you two, Joshua and Caleb. You'll see the promised land. So their faithfulness to the Lord and their courage and their strength um, rewarded them in that way. And I don't think it's so transactional like that, but that... but. There's a little picture of what it's like to walk with the Lord. And the, so they go out into 40 years of wandering. The 10 other spies don't even get to wander around for 40 years. They just get killed right off, the get, right off the bat. So now Joshua and Caleb are wandering around for 40 years. And I just like to think they're just always hanging out. And it's been like 25 years. And they're like, bro, you remember those grapes, man? <laughs> I wish I could have one of those right now because... Really, all they're eating now is manna, which we don't know what manna was like. Some, some people think it was kind of like gooey snot that was on leaves, you know. So it's like not something you want to like eat every day, but at least it will sustain you in the wilderness. So you're just thinking about these grapes, man, all the time. And they just, these two guys, but they know that they're going to get another chance at it to go in there. So it's been 40 years in the wilderness. And Moses is an old man. He's coming to the end of his time on this earth so it's time to appoint a new leader of Israel, and he appoints Joshua. So he comes to Joshua, and he imparts this on him. He goes, be strong and courageous. Be strong and take courage. And, and, and this, this impartment comes onto Joshua as a, he knows what, Moses knows what's coming for Joshua. He's a man who's had to lead hundreds of thousands of people out of slavery into the wilderness, deal with all their daily needs, and not only that, but their future in a wilderness where you have to be provided for every day by the Lord or you'll just wither away. So he knows that Joshua has to have strength and courage for this next step of his journey and to take these people and lead them forward. And he, um, he, he passes the baton, and he passes away. So now it's time for Joshua to take the reins and lead the people. It's not long after Moses dies. They're like, Moses passes away, and it's like, all right, it's time to go into the promised land. So Joshua has learned from the past, and this time he only sends two spies instead of 12 because he knows 40 years ago two spies could have got this work done, and we, we, we would have been sitting pretty for you know, a couple decades here. So it says that he secretly sent out two spies. And I think spying implies secrecy, like, like on the enemy front. You don't just like, hey, we're spies. You know, how's it going? All right, yeah, we're going to take, your, take your, your women and children and livestock. Okay, you know, that's not how you do it. You do that secretly. But the Bible says he sent them out secretly. And I think he had some shrewd awareness and some wisdom to send the spies out in secret of the people of Israel, maybe. You know, maybe, all right, we need to get some intel on this. And we don't, we're not going to bring everybody into this so that their fear and their unfaithfulness can take over and put us right back into this same thing again. Because he knows if the Lord is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, that they're just going to be in the same merry-go-round if they just keep going and not trusting the Lord. So he picks two people. I assume that they were close to him. Um, and that he trusted, and he says, go, go spy out the land. And in this case, they're not spying it out to see 
if they can. They're spying out to see how they can. And that's a totally different way to approach a situation, especially with confidence in the Lord in your life. It says that they came to the house of a prostitute in Jericho. And so her name was Rahab. And let's talk about that word prostitute a little bit. In the ancient Hebrew, they would have, that they used in this, it was more along the lines of the word like harlot. Um, or kind of someone who's just a part of, you know, maybe a nightlife or underbelly of the city. You know, just kind of this is the, this is the vibe. Um, and so I think she was more like this lady. So this is Silverado. This is a great Western. If you haven't seen it, you need to. It'll help your Americanness. okay? So um, these guys roll into town. They come to a saloon, of course, because every good Western has a saloon. And this is Estelle, the Midnight Star. And she um, oversees this place. So it's really, uh, it's a place where people come and they get some food, get some rations, get some sleep. And they get on their way or stay for a little while, do their business there. Um, she's probably more of an innkeeper in, in that sense. Um, and, the, and in the same way, yes, there was probably some, you know, philandering and hanky-panky, whatever you want to call, you know, in this establishment. I don't know. I wasn't there. But um, <laughs> the, her house would have been, this is Jericho, and this is, um, this is Jericho. They've got this inner wall and an outer wall. And just, you can pretty clearly see, you know, these are the haves. These are a little more the have-nots, you know, um, on the, this outer edge. And so, you know, Rahab's house would have been over on the side here, you know. So it says her house was built into the wall. So she was a part of this outer wall, and her house was there. And um, some research to do for yourself. They've found the ancient city of Jericho. They've done some really cool archaeological digs there. I had a bunch of pictures on here that were just boring you all to death, uh, so I, I, I took them out. Um, but the Rahab takes these spies and brings them into their house, and then the king hears about it, the king of Jericho, and he sends people to their house, and she hides them, right? She hides them on the roof. As a kid, I thought that was a roof like ours, pointy, and asphalt shingles. That's not how it was back then. They had flat roofs in many cases, and they would use their roofs as real estate in their house. Um, and so they would hang things up there to dry, store food, whatever it may be. And so she was drying out these uh, flax, uh, flax seeds, and, and so she hid them under there. And then the soldiers come, and they say, we know that the, um, Israel sent spies to you. We know they're staying here. We need, to, we need them. And she, she lies to them, and she says they went that way. Um, and so they head off after her. And the and Israelites' camp was that way, too, in the text. She sent them the wrong way, so she did them a favor and then even bought them some more time, sending them off the wrong way, um, just like a good Western saloon scene, in my opinion. But the... Um, Next, what happens is she's got to get them out of town, and the gate's all shut. The city's gate is shut, and they can't get out. So she takes a red cord, a scarlet cord, hangs it out the window, and she lets them down through that outer wall. Unfortunately, because of where she was located in the city, she could get them out through a window. And Rahab is a... Yeah, you know, the Bible mentions her as a prostitute and these things and whatever else, but what she is is a faithful, insightful, and loyal person. 
and she's talking with the spies, and she says, we know about the splitting of the Red Sea. We've heard about that 40 years ago. We know that the Lord has promised you this land. And she's wise and shrewd, and she, and, and, and she says, the people here, we all know about it, and we are all, and we're all terrified. We have no, it says that, that their courage like melted away, their hearts and their spirit melted, because um, they'd seen the things in the glory of the Lord. So she lets them down, and she says, I will not give up your, I, will, I won't tell them about you, but I just, I know that what the Lord says is real, and I want to be a part of that, and I also don't want to die. So when you guys come take this city, spare my, my, me and my family, um, and that's, um, and all those who belong to her. And so they say, that's what we'll do. They say, take this red cord and hang it in the window so that we can, we'll know it's your house. Um, right before Israel enters in to take over uh, Jericho, they, the timing would have fallen where they would have practiced Passover very recently, right before. And Passover, um, if you know the story, is, is the story of when in Egypt, in this case only 40-something years before, the Lord had them slaughter a lamb and paint it on the doorway, and paint the blood on the doorway, so that when the angel, the destroyer, came, it would pass over them and that they would be spared and the firstborn of Egypt would die. And so for these guys, they're smart and strategic and they go, hey, put this in your doorway because they know that every Israelite coming through there is going to be able to see it. It's easy, easy for them to communicate. You know, this person gets mercy, just like our fathers got mercy. And so that's how they, they did that. And Rahab is special she is, at this point in the story, without her, they're kind of up a creek, right? And she is faithful, and going forward from there, the story doesn't just end there with Rahab. Rahab, we can go all the way over to the lineage of Jesus, and Rahab is in the genealogy and the lineage of Jesus Christ. So she's an important figure going forward. She's also mentioned in Hebrews 11, which is the, called the Hall of Faith, would be the, of what we've titled it as. And it lists all these people of faith, uh, Abraham and Moses and these big heavy hitters, right? And she's listed in there too. So the Lord loved her and the Lord had a plan for her and she was faithful and loyal to him and she was a big part of the whole story. So the spies return and they give report to Moses and they say, the Lord has given us the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. So uh, Joshua is like, that's what I want to hear. Let's do it. So they get ready and they prepare themselves to cross over into the promised land. So in this picture, let's see, we've got, th these circles don't matter. Don't worry about that stuff. So this is... The Israelites, and this is probably where they came through on the Jordan. Down here, we've got the Dead Sea. Up here's the Sea of Galilee, the Mediterranean. The distance from here to here is like 84 miles. So we're kind of looking at a weird, you know, a weird flat map. But so they come here, and they're hanging out right there to cross the Jordan. And the, the Lord says, go and let the priest go before you. So 
the priests walk forward into the water, and as they step into the water, I'm going to note also that it's the Jordan, it was flood season, so it's like crazy amounts of water coming in. And the, when the priests step foot in there, the water just starts piling up upstream from them, and downstream it clears. So all this water just starts piling up around these priests, and the priests go stand in the middle of the river. Israel's able to cross, and then they, then the priests come out, and the river starts flowing again, full. Some of the significance of this would be that in this case, we have God establishing Joshua as leader of Israel. We had Moses appoint him leader, right? But we all know that sometimes when someone just gets in a leadership role over you or in, in a situation, you know that, they're like, who's this guy? You know, what's, what's the deal with this guy? And so in this case, we have the Lord is establishing Joshua as the leader in the eyes of Israel because they know the stories. They know that the Red Sea parted. They know that their fathers walked through it. And they see this miracle and they know, okay, this is our guy. This is who we want to follow. And so when they cross the Jordan, it says this in Joshua 5. Now when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites, their hearts melted in fear and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. So we'll see this over and over again where this, these people's uh, hearts and spirit are just melted away and they have no courage left. But Joshua has courage. Right before they head into go take Jericho, what happens here is, and I'll just read it real quick. It says, now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the Lord's army, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down on the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals, for the place you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Okay, so why does this matter? Um, besides the fact that it's like, the, and who is this guy, the commander of the Lord's army? He's kind of a scary guy when you walk up to somebody holding a sword. A held sword is different than a sheathed sword, right? This is, this is I can fight. This is I am about to do something with this. You know, this is, that's how that is. And so, who is this guy? It could have been the archangel Michael. It could have been just an angel. It could have been a Christophany, which is like a, a, a picture, Christ showing up in the Old Testament. It could have been a Theophany, which is God showing up in the Old Testament. Um, like when God walked with Adam in the garden, or like when... Uh, who was it when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego got thrown into the furnace and there was a fourth one with them? Who is it? I don't know. But it's super cool, and this stuff um, only strengthens my faith, and it's okay to not know, but it just makes me excited about who was this commander of the Lord's army? And why does it matter that he showed up for Joshua? Moses appointed Joshua leader over Israel. That was for Moses' sake. That was Moses retiring the end of his life, hanging it up. When they cross the Jordan, the Lord establishes Joshua in the eyes of Israel as their leader. But you can be strong and courageous and loyal and still be riddled with self-doubt 
and fear of the unknown. So I believe that in this instance, the Lord is establishing Joshua for Joshua's sake. He would have known Moses' story at the burning bush when the Lord said, take off your sandals for his place is holy. And in that moment, he knows just like at the beginning of Joshua when Moses lets him, he says, this is the Lord, the Lord says, I'll be with you. Be brave and courageous. Be strong and courageous. In this instance too, the Lord is establishing him and holding him up and letting him know that, you know, uh, yeah, this guy's dangerous. He's like, I'm not for you or against you um, in this sense, but I've come. You know, that's a bigger picture of maybe God's heart for the world. But he's, he, he's still there with Joshua, and he is with him in this instance. So it comes time to take the city. And I'll tell you this, uh, Jericho, uh, is, it's, it's pre- the best guess is that Jericho's built in 8,000 B.C., okay? That's old as rocks, all right? And, and uh, it's circa 19, or, or circa, not 1940, it's, it's 1400 B.C. in um, uh, Joshua's time. So you still have like, you know, 6,000 years of time that this place has been established. America, we've been here for like 200 years, okay? Like, put this in the perspective of your mind that this city has been established for thousands and thousands of years, okay? Um, here's the walls. You know, these are little soldiers down here. Um, so first you got to get over this wall, and then you got more walls, as we saw in that picture of that outer and inner wall, to take the whole city. And I mean, they don't have war machines. They don't have catapults, battering rams, drones. They don't have any of that stuff. So they have to get uh, over or through the wall somehow. Um, and how do they do that? Well, let's find out. Um, yeah, so this, who's seen this? Who knows what it is at least? Okay, good. Everybody's in there. So, um, some, I learned lots of great stories as a kid from this. Sometimes we also might be doing a disservice to some of what it was actually like. So these are the, the French peas who are uh, um, actually, they're supposed to be like the, the French soldier in Monty Python who's, you know, like, go away. You know, that's what it is. So um, they're, uh, that's not what it was. There's no singing peas, no waltzing with potatoes, okay? This is a picture of CSU Stadium. That holds 40,000 people. That's the amount of soldiers they took to go take Jericho. That's a, that's a huge force, all right? That's a lot of people coming in there. Like, even by, to, like, by today's standards, it's, it's a huge force. <laughs> like, so it, it, they're not messing around, okay? Um, there's no singing peas, yeah. No up and down the produce aisle, okay? It was like this, okay? It was. This is Lord of the Rings, okay? It was like this, okay? It's kind of hard to see in this light. These are all soldiers, you know, a whole bunch of them. And then these people are trembling up here, and they're fearful, and their hearts have melted, and uh, this is what's coming after them. And from a perspective of someone who lives in Jericho, here's how the legend goes for them. There's these people who cross the ocean that split for them. And then they've wandered the wilderness for 40 years, and a pillar of smoke and fire and a cloud follows them all around. I mean, we don't even know what they eat, you know. I don't know if they knew about manna or not, but you can see how the, the fear would grow and the legends of these people who are like, 
who are these people who said they're going to come take our land? And all they can do is rely on their, you know, 6,000-year-old wall. They, they've just, they have no faith or they have no courage left to fight. So there's hopelessness in that place. Um, how do they take it? The Lord says to Joshua, go march around this thing once a day for six days. Nobody talk, only blow ram's horns, okay? So they do that for six days. And on the seventh day, he says, walk around it seven times. And at the, at the seventh time, when I tell you, give a shout. I just love that. I think it's, it sounds so terrifying to be like, do not say a word. Where it's like, so for a whole week, you're in there, and it's just like marching soldiers and horns. You know, you're just like, you know the spanking's coming. You know, that's like, you're just like, ah, yeehaw. So there's, there's this brutal anticipation. On the seventh day, it comes. It happens for them. Seven times around, on the seventh day, they give a great shout and blow their trumpets, and the walls came tumbling down. They run in there. They kill everybody and everything. Their chickens, their children, the, the women, the men, they, it's, it, and they burn it. They, they, they only sack the city, but then they burn it. And, um, and the Lord commanded them to not even take a single thing from it, just burn it all. One person did take something, and that results poorly for Israel. We're not going to get in that, into that story today. So from here going forward, Joshua does seven years of conquering, and they go, and they just fight. They're killing kings and putting everybody to the sword. It's a bloody, violent time, um, and we're not going to go into that seven years, but it's seven years of that. And then it's seven years of allotting the land now the promised land that they finally come to. So this is kind of how it shakes out. That's a rough boundary of, for the 12 tribes who got what. Um, the, this picture, it looks like it should be like a first grader's textbook, but here's why it is important for modern perspective. If you've ever heard of something called the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, this is part of the root of that. Okay, this is where borders were drawn, God's promised land to his chosen people, all right? So this is where some of that and a lot of that kind of starts up from. Um, it's a super complex issue, um, and all I'll say is go learn about this whole thing for yourself from a biblical, biblical perspective, from a historical perspective. Just keep both eyes open and maybe do it with the heart of Christ behind it and see where he brings you to with it. But we do know that at this time, God promised the land to those people, and he delivered it to them. Um, in a big way. Something interesting that's special about the, this picture. So last week, Greg spoke about the kind of the progressive nature of the, the Levitical law and how it really actually brought a lot of human rights and humanity into the time. While maybe by today's standards, you'd be like, I don't understand that, or that seems you know, oppressive, this or that. You know, for the time where it was set, it was revolutionary, and it was totally countercultural to any other group around. And another one of those laws that came into place was these cities of refuge that they established in different locations throughout Israel. And all those locations, they're basically a means of a little bit of due process for people who, you know, for committing crime, something like, like manslaughter that we'd have today. Okay, you know, you dropped a rock on, your, on somebody, you killed them, you didn't mean to, there was a farming accident, you know, and this happened, and you were negligent. 
Um, so the way they used to deal with this is just an honor killing. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. If you take somebody out, their brother, their cousin, they come and kill you. And that's all there is to it. Until they come and kill you back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, until a whole bunch of blood is shed. So they established these cities of refuge so that people could go to them and they could have sanctuary there. And they could be in those places and kind of let things sort themselves out. You know, hey man, the thing with the ox broke, your brother died, you know, all right, we've understand each other now, you can come home. Um, hopefully it goes that simply for them. But this will come into play for Jesus. So um, Jerusalem here, um, when uh, Jesus was in Jerusalem, right before the crucifixion, he had to get out of town too, because they were after him. He went up towards Shechem, and he hung out up there in Ephraim, and he stayed there for a few days. And that's where he prepared himself and took shelter before he came back down into Jerusalem on the colt and then ultimately fulfilled his purpose um, a couple days later. So that's for you to know about that. Um, now we're at the end of Joshua's life. Seven years of conquering, seven years of allotting the land. He lived for a few more years after that. And it says this, um, Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had experienced everything the Lord had done for Israel. This is special. Israel was loyal during this time under Joshua, and Joshua was a loyal man to the Lord. And then we all, this last verse, the last part of this is, you know, that's for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Um, but there was, it's not as simple as sticking it over your sink or your fireplace or wherever the Pinterest thing you bought it from was. It is a call out from Joshua to the people. Joshua's at the end of his life and he comes to these people and he says, but if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. So he's putting it on them to make a decision and stick to their guns and have some loyalty and have some steadfastness um, in this case. And after this, Joshua passes away. And that's the end of his life. Um, let's go back to Joshua the spy for a little bit. All right. So when... Joshua was going into be a spy. I know some of you, I'm sure someone in this room has, has thought this to themselves. Joshua's name is actually Yeshua, because I know Hebrew. Some, someone's thought that in here, and I can't believe he's not even going to bring up that like Yeshua thing at all. Don't worry, we're going to get into it right now. So Joshua's name was actually Yeshua. It wasn't Joshua. That's our transliteration and our modern version of it, Yeshua. Okay? And his name wasn't even initially Yeshua, his original name when he was born was Hosea or Hosea. And when he went to be a spy, Moses changed his name to Yeshua. Yeshua today, how we say Yeshua, also we say Jesus. So we also, somewhere in here, a couple hundred years of, you know, different way a Y turns into a J, you know, whatever else. Um, that's how we got to Jesus. It's from Latin versus going back to the Hebrew. That's what happened for that. So 
But Joshua and Jesus is the same name, Yeshua. And um, that's what it looks like in Hebrew. We're going to dig into this little piece right here. That's called a yod, is the, uh, that little comma-looking thing. Okay? So, Hosea means he saves in its root. Okay? Yeshua, he changed, when he gets his name changed, Yeshua, that Yah at the beginning is to reference Yahweh, God. You know, the God of Abraham, Isaac. Moses, right? So his name is now God saves or God redeems, not just he saves. He's given his name more power and more meaning in this instance. And not only that, but this little Shua right there, if you take that to stand alone, that is means to cry out or one who cries out. Okay, so his name's been changed from he saves to Yahweh saves. And to one who cries out. Um, so, uh, Matthew 14, uh, Peter is in the boat and with the disciples. And they see a ghost coming on the Sea of Galilee. And they say, it's a ghost. And then one guy says, no, it's Jesus. And Peter says, Lord, if it's you, call me out to you. And he says, it is me. So he steps out of the boat and he starts walking on water. But then it says, when he saw the wind... He was afraid and began to sink and cried out, Lord, save me. So, you know, this crying out, this Shua, when he says, Lord, save me, it's almost like he's just saying, Jesus, Yahweh, save me. Lord, save me. Um, and he didn't have much time because he's about to drown. So he gave a simple prayer. This is the letter Hey in the Hebrew alphabet, all right? It's like, uh, basically like our H. In the beginning of all time, God created the earth, heavens, stars, all these things, then he created Adam, and he came to Adam, and says he gave him the breath of life into his nostrils. Life, okay? This H in ancient Hebrew stands for the breath of life of God, okay? So let's take... Abraham, his name was Abram, and then when the Lord promised him that he would be prosperous and many numbers multiply, Abraham gave him life. When Sarai, when she was barren and she had no children and God had promised her children, when it was finally time, they put an H on there, Sarah, the breath of life of God into these people, Okay. So, this is the name of God. This is Yahweh. We added the A and the E um, sound in there. So, this is that breath of life I'm talking about. And this is two other letters. If you were just to say this without the vowels we added, it goes like this. Yahweh. Right? Yahweh. Yahweh. It's kind of how you'd say the name of God. Um, all right. Hebrew used to be way more pictographic, used to be way more hieroglyphic. Okay, so you, this is what it would have looked like back then. And by the way, we're reading this way, right to left. So we've got this little thing right here. It's a guy's arm. And then we've got this guy with his hands raised to heaven. We've got this little stick 
is what that is. And then we've got another guy with his arms raised to heaven. So let's break down what that even means. Okay, this first one, what they call it is a yod he vad he is the letters, all right? The yod is a hand. This next one is the breath of life or to worship. The next one is a stake. It's a stake in the ground. And the last one is to worship. So to take you to a scene, a man on a cross, not yet lifted high. The name of God that was spoken to Moses way a long time ago goes like this. Hand, breath, worship, nail, breath, worship. The name of God even echoes into the future of what Jesus would do for us on the cross. Um, Worship team, if you guys are new, you can come back up here. So, that is his name. And that's why his name matters. I wrote out this conclusion, so I'm just going to read it so that I don't miss anything, all right? Be strong and take courage. I'm going to tell you guys about one more thing before I do that. My 2020, everybody had a rough 2020, but, you know, here's what my 2020 looked like. It was full. It was so full of life and other stuff. I had, I bought a business, and then my grandfather passed away. Three days later, my son Lucas was born, and I was a dad for the first time. Then a couple months later, I'm running a business through COVID. I'm not the best time to purchase a company, but that's okay. And then my other grandpa passes away. All right? It's like, man, there's so much good and so much hard. What's going on? And then we get to the end of the year. My father gets COVID. Darn near takes his life. And I'm just like, I'm in this place right around November, December. It's just so full. I have a new business. I have a son. My all the males in my life are, are, some of them just passed away, and one I'm afraid is going to, man. They'll leave me. And uh, at, a, at, a two, at a staff meeting, we were at, talking about, how's, how are you doing? What's your thing? I just said, my year's just been so full, so full. How can you have all this? It's not good or bad. It's just full of life and the things it brings. So, church, here you go. Be strong and take courage. Life is full, and it's full in every way. And in this life, you will find yourself on the mountaintops with hands raised in victory, head held high, but all too often you may find yourself on the battlefield, bloodied and beaten, your face downcast in a valley of misery and torment. Be strong and take courage in all things and all this fullness that life can bring. All you need do is speak the name of God and his son. Jesus. Jesus, help me. In the name of God, Son. When you have no strength, let the joy of the Lord be your strength. Find rest in the King of peace, his peace that surpasses all understanding. Be strong and take courage. Like Joshua, serve the Lord all the days of your life. By your example, lead those around you. 
to the feet of the king, the one who was pierced, the one who will lift you from the miry clay. For we do not have a savior who overlooks our weakness and need, but one who knows our struggles and our plight. With confidence we must draw near to the throne of grace, to the mercy seat, to find grace in our time of need. Church, be strong and take courage and breathe. close us in some prayer. Jesus. Amen.